Praise be to God. Such a light-hearted reading this morning, isn't it? If you were here with us last week and you haven't read Romans yet, you're in for a treat. As Daniel said, we were praying, we dove in, and, and a lot of prayer and discussion. And, and this passage in particular gives us a lot of help and a lot of hope. You might not see it at first, and I, I pray by the end you will. Um, as we see the importance of, of truth here, as we see this, this point in Paul's letter to the Romans, is not just to dump a bunch of weight and dark and, and, and point fingers, but, but to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and then the Greek. And it's from faith for faith. And, and the point of the good news, the point of Jesus living and dying for you to show you how much God loves you, that light is seen probably the best on the backdrop of such a dark world. That's not just then, it's now. It's not, a, it's not a forewarning, it's a commentary of current events as you read that. I was at the skate park the other day, and I said, hey, it's time to go. And I got met with the most joyful smile. Okay, Dad, let's go. I got to go put the trash out, and I got to go dig the trench for you. It was, it was amazing. It left everyone shocked. How'd you get them to obey that way? In my mind, that's how it was going to play out. In reality... I got, no dad, one more trick. And then the grandpa next to me just unleashed. Kids these days, I'm a grandparent. Oh my goodness. I would never talk back to my dad. No offense or anything. My head would have been rolling if I said that. So here we are today. Having that commentary. You kids have it so good. You don't know. In 1975, several years before his death, Charlie Chapman created a contest, a look-alike contest, that he entered himself thinking it would be a funny joke in France. And he thought he'd be a shoe-in for first prize, grand prize. I'm, I'm him, so obviously I look not just like him, I'm him. To his surprise, he got third in the look-alike contest of him. The importance of looking at God's word and holding it up as truth. It's been said multiple times by pastors and, and authors that, that the people that, that study currency in order to tell the fake, in order to tell the lookalike from the real thing, the authentic from the counterfeit, they only study the authentic. They only study the real thing. But I didn't believe it, and I didn't want to lie to you. So I did research, and a guy also didn't believe it. And, and he went and he got interviewed and background checked and, and got to the source and said, is it true or is this just another, pa-? if you've been around sermons and they kind of make stuff up or tell things like, yeah, whatever, that just fits your narrative, pastor. It's a good illustration, but is it really true? I don't want to be that. So I did the research. I found the guy that did it, actually. I'm really good at that. So he did it, spent the money, flew over, got the interview, and they said, yeah, it's true. We only look at the authentic. And because we know what's true, it's easier to find the counterfeit. This is an actual $100 bill that was floating around our house, and my wife and I were passing it back and forth until, reali- until we both realized, wait, where did that come from? 
Because we don't have, it took me so long to get this $100 bill. Like for millennial, we know, older generations, we don't actually have money. It's like on our phones, on our watches. Some people have things in their hands now, like little grains of rice they just pay with. So, so when my wife had this, we were like passing it around and we almost spent it. And I looked at it and I'm like, oh my goodness, this says copy money on it. What? Like, where'd this come from? And my son's like, oh, I got it from school. I'm like, well, did you know it was copy money? Like, what did, did, did a scooter disappear and you traded a kid? Like, what? No, 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 I just traded him a pack of gum for some fake money. I thought it was funny. Like, All right, well, you almost made a fool and maybe got us arrested. That would have been really awkward to explain how I paid with a counterfeit $100 bill. The interesting thing here when we read the Greek that's translated suppress is to hinder or obscure. It's hiding the truth. The, the counterfeiters do that. They, they hide the truth and they, they print it on paper even that feels good. But unless you, unless you hold it up, which I was trained at a fine establishment, in and out unless you hold it up and see through the $100 bill, even though you mark it, even though you hold it, you got to look through it. And that's what we do every day is we hold God's word up. And we look through it and we see Christ. And, and we figure out the, the, the corporate as well as the individual response. And that's what our heart is. It's, it's not to say, hey, this is God's word and, and, and feel the weight of it. Because it hurts all of us. It's heavy. The, the law says you're all in sin. But God's love says, but I've paid for that sin. I've forgiven you of that sin. And I want to show you my love and that I sent my son to die in your place. So as we talk about this message today, in Romans chapter 1, it's, it's no longer a surprise. It's no longer, why is the pastor talking about homosexuality in church? That's weird. Because last March, the CDC did a study suggesting one in five high school students see themselves not as heterosexual. Our culture has long since exchange the truth of God for a lie. It's long since said, hey, we're going to look at the creation rather than the creator. And now the consequences are students. It goes on to say in the article that the report showed the numbers doubled since 2012. There's a lot of Generation Z, millennials, identifying as LGBTQ. It's, it's the cultural norm now. It's the, the movement of the culture. And, and it's, it was interesting because I stopped and did sermon prep and I went back to the article and was reading it. And, and further down, a guy that was homosexual, was, has same-sex attraction, but is now a believer, follows Christ. So his identity is in Christ. It's not that he's heterosexual. He still has same-sex attraction, but God's redeemed that, restored him to his natural created role and he leads organization called gays against groomers and, and they stated that that it's actually grooming to have a flag in a classroom because all that is is saying this is the sexual deviancy this is all about the sexual behavior and it's it's interesting because in our in our culture there's either silence or there's anger and yet Paul just lays it out and it's so heavy and dark and depressing that even I, I'm like squirming all week. How are we gonna, how are we gonna talk about this? And people are like, you're gonna talk about that? I'm like, oh, yeah, I am. It's right here. 
It's, it's the truth. I have to know the truth so I can, I can walk the truth out in love. But I got to figure out what the truth is first so that when there's deception and there's lies, I know what the truth is and then I don't have to freak out, right? You know the, the new young cash registers, they get money in their hand for the first time and they're like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. And then the confident manager walks up. Yeah, it's fake. There's no freaking out because he knows the truth. He's been doing it for years. The same thing is, as believers, when we know the truth, we're not squirming and Jesus didn't show up and was like, oh God, get me out of here. There's a bunch of sinners. I didn't know it was this bad. He's like, yeah, you guys are really messed up. But you guys are in luck. I'm going to die for you. It's awesome. So don't sin anymore. Good, good. That's it. Now go tell everyone about me. And yet we want to make money off that. Or we want to control people. Or we want to make ourselves feel better by looking down on what other people are sinning, even though we have the same sin. That's the next, cha- the next week. Come back. Okay, come back. He says, hey, you're all judges. Stop judging because you're all guilty. The point of Romans is saying to the Jew that thinks that they are better than you, you're not. He's saying, look, you're a Jew and you think you're better than you. Your neighbor, you think you're better than your mom, you think you're better than your son. You're actually a sinner just like the thief, just like the murderer, just like the disobedient child, just like the one who has the same-sex attraction is acting on that desire. You, the Jew, who's in church, C.S. Lewis says you're actually probably further from God. You're closer to hell. And we see that. When Jesus walks up to the demonically possessed woman, he casts the demons out and she repents, turns to him, follows him. It's the rich ruler, it's the Pharisee that comes to Jesus and walks away without eternal life, holding his, his money his money. He, he got deceived. He wasn't looking for the truth. He was looking to be encouraged and to be celebrated for his own moral acts. And yet Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. No matter what sin you're struggling, no matter what desire or bent, that's actually a definition for sin. You're bent. I'm bent. I, I have a desire to sin. And I, I could go through the list, but many of you already know what they are. So I'm not going to bore you with that. You're like, yeah, we know you're a sinner. We're praying for you, Pastor. Just keep this a little shorter today. Let's move on. We don't need you to confess anymore to us. We know. And so in, in an attempt, we're going to go through that first part, and then we broke it down in three points, which are in your notes. And then there's a helpful literary uh, tool that Paul uses, three of threes we'll look at. But because into that darkness, we need to see the contrast. So I got too depressed writing this, and, and I flipped it. I said, okay, what if it was the positive instead of the negative? Because my personality is just all positive, and we're all going to be in heaven, so Jesus is coming back. So let's go. We're ready. We don't need to go prep or try and move to Tennessee. Jesus has us moving to heaven. He's already got your mansion and your homes decked out, and moth and rust or the government can't take it away. So stop buying rice and trying to relocate. You're already going to heaven if you're a Christian. So the ultimate prepper is preparing for you, and he's coming back for you. We're good. So while we're here, what are we supposed to do? What do we have to look forward to? The positive, which is what I was hoping I'd experience at the skate park, would read like this. God gave them over in their hearts to self-control, purity, that their bodies might be honored among them, for they kept and cherished the truth of God and worshiped the and serve the creator who is blessed forever rather than the creature, amen. 
For this reason, God gave them over to pursue wholesome lives, lived with carefree ease, even in the most intimate relations, so they all received in their own persons the due reward for their fidelity. And just as they saw fit to acknowledge God in all things, God gave them over to a sound mind to do those things which are proper, being filled with all righteousness, goodness, generosity, kindness, full of selflessness, life, healing, openness, kindliness. They are gentle in speech, always building up others, lovers of God, respectful, humble, self-effacing, inventors of good, obedient to parents, understanding, trustworthy, loving, merciful, and as they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are possessors of life. They do the same and give hearty approval to those who do likewise. When we reverse Paul's thoughts, isn't that good? Doesn't that make you feel like, yeah, that's, that's a community I want to move to? That's what God wants to transform you into in loving others the way God loves you. Inventing good, not evil. Lovers of others, not yourself. Putting others' needs first. But Paul paints the picture that's so dark and bleak and just, ugh, gross. I just want to squirm and vomit and like, am I that bad? Oh, I'm worse. Okay, that's a problem. And I can't fix it. And Paul says, no, but here's the good that the gospel is going to produce in you. That God's love is going to flow through you to others around you. His grace brings freedom from bondage. Light from darkness. Life to death. As we keep this in mind, holding on to the promise of the gospel, he started with in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news that God promised his son would come before he created the world to the fullness of time to die in our place. As we hold on to that, looking at the reality of the dark parts of this passage, we see the importance of it continues to have the transformative effect that it had on Martin Luther. We talked about last week and and people today is a Bible study. There was a a physician by the name of Richard Halverson in a Bible study on Romans, doing what we're doing today, opening God's word, studying the truth. What is the truth? Am I in right relation to, to Jesus who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me? Richard's reading Romans and he says, I don't ever remember reading the Bible this way, but tonight, as I read Romans 1, I see myself in it. What must I do to be saved? I pray that for you, if you've never received Jesus, understood your need for Jesus, that Paul, when he wrote this, to accomplish that same effect, because you don't know if you're going to meet Jesus tonight. You're going to meet him one way or the other, and I pray you meet him now as your Lord and Savior, so when you bend the knee, you know that you're bending the knee to your Lord and Savior, not the first meeting where he says, get away from me, I don't know you. That's the terrifying reality. He's trying to shake up the Jew who thinks they're good in their self-righteousness and the Gentile who thinks the world is, is telling them the truth, but really it's full of, full of lies. So as we see, all unbelievers suppress the truth of God. His external power, his divine nature, as they refuse to honor him and exchange the great truth of who God is for a lie, they bring about an idol-making perversion of the truth. And as they suppress the truth, it culminates in a perversion of life until God gives them over in their sin. So we see God's glory is revealed in the righteousness of God, but when they exchange the glory of God for the creation for a lie, that's 
where the downward spiral ultimately in our own exchanging what was natural for unnatural behavior. We go back to Genesis and people think Paul might have been meditating on Genesis or another source that was talking about human life, cultural norms. And we see that God was always for human flourishing. He creates male and goes, well, that's not good because he can't reproduce on his own. He needs a helper. He's limited in many ways. So here's Eve. Here's a helper. And through Adam and Eve, they can procreate, which means human flourishing and community. That was the first authority was husband and wife. And we see as as God's glory in his creation, he's talking about here verses 18 through 23. Verse 19, what can be known about God's plain to them? Because God's shown it to them. His invisible attributes, it goes on. His eternal power, divine nature, it's all visible through creation. So we see that, number one, that the unbelief, the suppression of the truth, generally. When, when we don't believe in God, we suppress the truth. Verses 18 through 20, and again, verses 24 through 27. And then the second point he brings up is the unbelief, the perversion of the truth, which is verse 21 through 23. They knew God, but they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That, that futile means literally there's nothing. It's, it's, it's void of any logic or reason. And we see that unbelief, where they're praising evil practices, 24 and 25 and also verse 32, where at the end, they know, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They know God. They, they have the truth, but they suppress it. Not only do they suppress it, but they pervert it. And when they pervert it, then they start praising people who join in their acts of perversion and suppressing the truth. And it's no wonder that Paul writes this then. And God has it revealed for us to be encouraged and equipped as we walk out the doors, studying truth again and realizing without the truth, here's the darkness and the void of any hope. We see in general, God's wrath is directed against evil alone. We get angry when our pride is wounded, but there's no personal angle for God in his anger. When we see the initial God's wrath, his wrath is holy hostility to evil. His refusal to condone it or come to terms with it. It's his just judgment upon it. It's his judgment. He says, vengeance is mine. Jesus came to show us, here's how we go out in the world and not of the world. We leave the wrath and the judgment for God. He is holy. When we sin, we sin against him in his natural created order. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, Romans 3, 23. So when we realize we're all sinners, there's a couple statements we have. One's with the the Christian Missionary Alliance has a lot of just facts and verses but it's pretty, it's pretty blunt. And, and so as, as, as a pastor, who was a youth pastor, I, I, I appreciate that because growing up, I didn't always have pastors talking about this from the pulpit. I didn't have youth leaders that had all the verses to guide me of, hey, here's where we form our view of the natural order. But, but then 
we got that, but it was this, oh, so now it's our wrath against what's morally unacceptable or culturally not, not, not encouraged. Instead of, well, but Jesus came to show God's love for us. While we were sinners, he died for us. Romans 5, 8. So maybe while we can hold the truth, we can still love and lead them to Jesus. Maybe we need a statement that's a little bit more practical and moving us with the truth out to a world that's hurting and hopeless without knowing that God loves them and saved them by the truth. And so there's another statement we have in the app. It's also printed. So if you have the Life Community Church app in the notes section, there's a statement. I wanted to read the last two for you. We advocate that Christian churches extend love and truth in ministering to individuals impacted by homosexuality. Those contending biblically with their sexual temptations should be supported in their struggle rather than ostracized or disdained. However, individuals in prominent leadership or modeling roles within a church or conference institution are held to higher expectations for sexual obedience and wholeness. We affirm that heterosexual and homosexual individuals should find help within the church in their biblical battle against all improper sexual thoughts and behaviors. So we see Paul dives into it, and as we get into it in a minute, first, because of our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. And the consequence, verse 22, claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man, birds and animals, creeping things. And then God ultimately gives them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, dishonoring bodies in verse 24. And jumping down to verse 26, the reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Whether you're heterosexual or you have same-sex attraction, Paul goes deep dive into it, saying, okay, what's going on here? Why, why is Paul just bringing this up? Because he's saying any sin, there's no fear of God that leads to self-centeredness, that leads to just worshiping your, yourself your sex self, and, and he's saying, look, you've already forgotten about the, the general revelation of, of me through my creation, and now you're so focused on yourself. And that the, the power of the general revelation that's been put on pause, first we see that the general revelation is different than the special in that, number one, it's general because to everybody everywhere, as opposed to special, which is made to a particular people in particular places through Christ and the biblical author. Secondly, it is natural because it's made through natural order as opposed to supernatural, involving the incarnation of the Son and the inspiration of scriptures. And thirdly, the natural revelation is continuous because it's through creation of the world. It's gone on day after day after day where the special revelation was finished when Jesus died on the cross and the scriptures were written pointing us to him and his work. And lastly, we see that the creational revelation through natural revelation is God's glory through his creation as opposed to the salvific revelation of God's grace, God, God's grace in Christ. And we see through creation, it's supposed to point us to Jesus. It's supposed to point us to God, the creator. As we see a consultant surgeon who's brilliant said, I am filled with the same awe and humility 
when I contemplate something of what goes on in a single cell, is when I contemplate the sky on a clear night, the coordination of the complex activities of the cell and a common purpose hits the scientific part of me as the best evidence for an ultimate purpose. As we see time and time, brilliant minds have looked at the, uh, the ear and said, there's no way that just bang, poof, it, it all happened. There's no way the flower's just working on its own, just random chance. There has to be a creator, a designer. And that's supposed to point us there, but we see in plain language, Paul's saying, once you reject the natural creator and you exchange it for the creation, ultimately leads to sexual perversion, heterosexual or homosexuality. And as Paul seemingly singles this out, every time you read it, it's always in a list. Every time you read scripture, it's never referenced just alone. It's always in a list of sins. Other sins are just as evil, but they are naturally evil. And God emphasizes the sin of inversion to show us that inside the unbelieving man is a, is a running sore that indicates a far deeper dimension of the wounds of sinful society. And we see in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, I do have to pause and give you a heads up as we read these verses. God's word never returns void. And God's great commission to you, the command was to go and teach everyone everywhere to obey his word. I'm often reminded of that as I studied this and I prepared to talk with our high school and middle schoolers because they were dealing with it 10, 12 years ago when I was a youth pastor. And now we're seeing, yeah, there's still the reason they were dealing with this because the culture was making it nuanced and making it normative. And so I was trying to equip them. Little did I know God was equipping me because I, I boarded a plane and I sat down and put the headphones on and talked to this woman and we're sitting there flying and we exchanged kind of, you know, normal, casual conversation. Then all of a sudden it comes up and I'm like, oh good, I can dive back into my book. And she asked me what I do and that's the conversation ender. I'm a pastor. And she's like, okay, cool. But I sensed the spirit was saying, hey, remember that thing you studied? It wasn't just for students, it was for her. I'm like, okay, Lord, here we go. And I knew it was coming. And the next question, I don't know if that's normative for you. I, it is for me. So the next question comes, hey, I talked to my pastor. I'm like, I know it's about her son. And she's like, my son came out with same-sex attraction. What do you think? And, and my buddy, an, an intern, was sitting behind me just listening. And, and I'm like, hey, you know, here's, here's the amazing thing about God and his created order and his plan. And I knew this verse. And, and for her, the only thing she's heard and the only thing the church ever said was because your son is attracted to the same sex, he can't inherit the kingdom. And maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've, you think it's in the Bible somewhere. It's not. Every time Paul wrote it, he said, look, there's drunkards, there's swindlers, there's liars, there's adulterers, and there's also people who have same-sex attraction. And that's who they were, but Jesus justified them, sanctified them, washed them away and gave them a new life. And, and Paul was writing this to the church in Corinth, and so I was able to say, look, it's not that your son's sin of homosexuality is keeping him from God. It's that your sin and my sin, it's whatever we're bent to do, it's wherever we find our identity in that doesn't allow God's love to flow to you. And you're saying, no, 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 I don't believe in God. It's the reward for unbelief. 
And for many people, they don't want to have that conversation. They don't want to talk about it on the plane. They don't want to talk about it in the office. They don't want to talk about it, period. And I was telling my daughters, I'm like, hey, pray for me. It's a little tough sermon. And Peyton, my middle, is like, what are you talking about? Like, homosexuality and her face scrunched up. She's like, that's not going to go well, Dad. They're not going to like that. I'm like, I know. I'm doing it. And here we are. It's the truth. But it's how we handle the truth. Jesus had to come because his chosen people that were supposed to have God's love and promise and blessing flow through them to others, they stopped praying for people. They weren't listening. They weren't eating with people. They couldn't eat with the Gentiles. They're unclean. They're never going to serve them, much less let them serve the Jews, and they weren't going to share the hope they had. That's what God called his church That's what God's called the Jew, the Gentile. That's what God has called you and I to bless them. Begin in prayer. And he's saying, look, the Corinth church were previously homosexuals, drunkards, thieves, murderers, but they were washed, cleansed. That's the church today. I pray that that's our church. We'd be made up of people of all different backgrounds and Jesus would wash us. Jesus would justify us, sanctify us, and then we would go out and love one another. And we would see that the people sitting alone as a tragedy in, our, in our, our meetings and run to them and say, oh, we have a visitor. Why are you here? Because the enemy does and he's trying to get in their head. Hey, you don't, they don't want you here. Get out of here. We need to counter that with, hey, you're loved. You're accepted by Jesus. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what you did. Jesus already paid for you. And now you're going to experience this worship that's for believers, by believers as we glorify God. And that's what's going to bring you and see the goodness of God that changed us can change you. And Paul emphasized this sin, not, not because it was this crazy, just, oh no, but he emphasized it because it was all around him. It was everywhere. It's like today. He was writing from Corinth in the sin capital of Asia. Greek culture taught that homosexual love wasn't just a good thing, normative thing that should be accepted and we should pay taxes like in San Francisco to offset health consequences for that community. But it actually went beyond that. So every time I read scripture and I talk to people, I'm like, oh, you shouldn't talk about that. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is tame. Let's look at history. You know why Paul was writing this? Because many high-born Greeks maintained that male lovers along with their wives, it was no different in Rome. 14 of the 15 emperors, the first 15 emperors were homosexuals. And Romans 1 describes any major city in the world, basically, today. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? But it's not. It's normative. And it was thought that that was the highest form of love, was to be homosexual. Their thinking was, you have to be homosexual to reach what love is. As I, as I heard, there, there's a, a woman who wrote a book called Born Again This Way. She grew up south of here in, in Solvang, went to Yale, was wanted to, to, to seek God, and, and as she read God's word, she saw the truth. And everyone said, no, 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 that's actually, it was talking about like when, when gay people rape people, that's like horrible, but that's not what it's talking about in Romans 1. You, you, can, you can still be gay and, and be a Christian. You can actually be a pastor. And so the culture constantly wants to suppress and cover and hide the truth, but she's holding up the truth going, this... Yep, I can see through your lie. 
Jesus said no. Jesus said that we're all sinners and we all need to be saved by grace. And so she kept pursuing and God kept drawing her until she realized, oh, the love I was looking for as a lesbian can only be satisfied in Christ. I'm still same-sex attracted. And God redeemed and restored her and she ended up getting married, but her salvation is in Jesus. Her relational status is with a man under God's natural order. But she says something that might make you squirm. She says, you know, it's interesting because my husband and I are still attracted to the same type of female. And it's like, wow, that's weird. But she subdues. She, she has this natural tendency, but she restrains it and says, no, but this is God's plan. This is his order. And she wrote this book that, that many... Even I have found helpful thinking through, okay, this is the natural, and you were that way before God justified you, sanctified you, transformed you, and your salvation is not in your behavior, it's in your Lord who saved you. And it describes our culture today. Romans is still relevant, and it helps us understand the need for the gospel, the need to be gracious and loving while not compromising on the truth. And so we can't suppress the truth. Number two, we, we, we can't pervert the truth, which is 21 through 23. The result of the progressive degenerative idolatry that continued. Their foolish hearts were darkened. This is significant because man's faculties, we have this moral judgment and we continue to exchange the truth for a lie. And we see this best in the three of threes. So if you look at verse 23... He says, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. That's where it started. And then in 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So first, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God. And then as a result, in verse 24, therefore God gave them up to lust. And impurity, and then again, the third consequence is dishonoring their bodies among themselves. The second set of threes starts in verse 25, where he says, because they exchanged the truth about God. So first again is the exchange for a lie. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And we see the consequence in verse 26. For this reason, God gives them up for dishonorable passions, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the second set of threes is in verse 28, where it starts, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gives them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And that's the first consequence, because they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gives them up again for a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, which is found in verse 27. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in them the due penalty for their error. So the three sets of threes, he says, they exchange the truth for a lie and God gives them up and then here's the consequence. As we see, it continues with the unbelief praising the evil that they're doing as we see our culture continuing to call lies truth and truth lies and praising the evil. We see the final distinctive of unbelief is the perversion of life itself. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worship and serve 
created things rather than the creator who's forever and ever praised. Amen. We see as the, the woman who is believing the lie that, that she has this desire and she needs to fulfill that desire by being a lesbian and then someone comes to her and says, hey, you know, God has a bigger purpose than that. That, that love you're looking for, that, that soul yearning, it's only found in Jesus. Come to church. She comes to church, she reads this passage, and she realizes, you know, God's plan for me as a woman is to bring life, to, to have a baby, to have a child. As you, as you heard Ellie's testimony, and many of you women, that's a yearning that God put in there because that's his natural order. So when you realize what's true, you can easily just see, oh, I was told a lie, and I want this, and I want to bring human flourishing into existence, and because of my self-worship, because of my self-centered worshiping the same sex, this relationship I'm in is actually not just sin, it's hindering God bringing new life through his created order so that salvific order can take place. How selfish am I? So she turns to Christ, becomes a believer, and her partner continues living a life in sin. But we see how are we to respond? How are we to be a church that's going to be like the First Corinthians church Paul talks about, where who we once were in sin, but now Jesus changed us? We can't have the last word. The discipline of not having the last word. I was so excited to share at the, the school board meeting a month ago, and I put my name in. They didn't let me talk. And I had so much peace. It's like, that's what I do. My job is to evangelize and tell the truth. I study the truth. I want to share the truth with you. God's love for human flourishing and compel you. You're hurting. You're depressed. The numbers are continuing to rise. Even if you put flags on the wall, the depression rate goes up. The suicide rate goes up. You need Jesus. He's the only one that will bring you hope. And God said, no, you don't get the last word. Oh, teaching me what discipline? That's a discipline? And I was reading about it. There was a, a class and a, and a student asked the professor a question. It was such full of hypocrisy and lies. And it, and it was a philosophical class. And the student comes up to him, to the professor after, because the professor ended the class. As the question was asked, he just said, all right, that's enough time for today. You're dismissed. And the students were appalled. They're like, what are you doing? You're letting the, the lie just linger. Shut it down. Dismantle it with truth. You know the truth. And Dallas Willard said, I'm practicing the discipline of not having the last word. Jesus is the truth. The truth will set you free. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We don't have to have the end. We don't have to have the last word. The arrogance that we think, oh, if I just say this, if I just do this, then, then I can get them into heaven. It's the story of, of that woman who read the word and God revealed himself to her. God has the last word. We don't have to. We can lovingly sit alongside someone and say, come to Jesus. Here's the truth. We can hold the truth and yet love them and lead them into that place and say, look what Jesus has done for you. Your life doesn't have to be that way. Look at the, the natural order that God planned. Do you see how this, this sin's getting in the way of that? And it's our culture that we're walking into. Where Adele said, I'm going to leave my husband because it's not that I don't love him. It's just I'm not in love with him 100%. And I want my heart to be happy. I want to go explore things. And the culture says, yeah, you be happy. Do what you want to do, however you want to do it. Live how you want to live. 
Love is love. And they've taken these words and they've taken these things that and redefined it. And so as we look at the truth, we hold to the truth and we go, you know what? We live in a culture where they're inventing evil and they're calling lies good and they're calling what's true a lie. We have to know the truth so we can sit confidently at peace knowing the truth and being like Jesus and loving like Jesus and practice that discipline of not having the last word and letting our actions sometimes, as I, as I learned, the power of presence, being in a room of people that, that oh, there's, there's a pastor who's far more concerned with my flourishing than my ideas. We might disagree, but he cares for me. There's a woman on a plane, I, I, look, I care for you and your son, and here's what I know is Jesus came to die for you and me. We can talk about specific sins, yeah, but it's sin that separates us from God. And unless we can get on our knees and surrender, there's no hope for any of us. And so to have that posture and say, okay, I surrender. What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to love? How do you want me to share? And let the Spirit lead you. But we have to begin in prayer. Let's pray. God, as we come to you, may we have hearts in a posture of surrendered people, knowing we too once were in sin, cut off from you, living in a world that celebrated what we thought was good and right, but we know it was wrong in your sight. And yet you saw us in sin, sent your son to die in our place that we might have new life. We might have the righteous life. We might have an opportunity to glorify you through our good works, that your glory would be seen through your righteousness in God, but you, God, wanted to be in us. We pray as you have drawn people here, there's people that don't yet know you, that they'd see they're separated from you, whether it's their pride, where they don't struggle with same-sex attraction, but they struggle with having the last word and always trying to tell their kids or their family or their employees what to do rather than coming to you and saying, okay, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to love? How do you want me to pray? That we would begin in prayer and we would listen to your spirit and we would listen to their response and be open to what you're calling us to do to show them how much you care for them and you love them. And for those that are believing in you for the first time saying, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus to pay the price for my sin. I need him to remove it, take away the pain and the shame and give me a new life in Christ. We pray they would let us know we could walk with them as they follow you, Jesus. We pray for the believer now as they sit with you, your spirit would comfort them and give them the courage and confidence to go into a dark world and shine with the light and love of Christ that they might be saved. In Jesus' name.